0: to help in time of need, this is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Miss Bonnie, for Thank you, Pastor Tom, for leading us in prayer. I've really enjoyed this sermon series through the Book of Hebrews. We called it "Jesus is Greater." Um, <clears throat> It's all through the book of Hebrews. Hebrews is one of these books of the Bible that has a lot of verses that, I mean, it's just chock full of verses that a lot of us know, and they're very helpful, very meaningful for us. And a lot of verses that I would encourage you to read, to know, to meditate on, to memorize, uh, because they're just so helpful. For example, last week, Hebrews 4.12, where the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. And last week, we talked about how that verse highlighted the, uh, the potency and the importance of God's word in our lives individually and in our group collectively as a church. But I mentioned that last week, uh, that verse is actually the conclusion of Hebrews chapter 3 and chapter 4. So that verse is actually uh, Hebrews four twelve and 13. That's more of a warning for us not to neglect God's word and so fall into disobedience and disbelief, but instead to allow God's word in our lives to be uh, that supernatural spiritual scalpel that we need in order to fully receive God's rest that Hebrews chapter 3 and chapter 4 were talking about because it was an exposition of, of Psalms chapter 95. And it was kind of a, a warning from the negative, like don't neglect this so that you can enter God's rest. Well, today we're going to turn a, pas- uh, a corner with this passage here, what was just read to you in Hebrews chapter 4 beginning in verse 14 because now it starts to open up this larger Explanation of who Jesus Christ is, and and it brings us into this argument about who He is and what He's done for us in His in His life. It's kind of more of a positive encouragement here. It's a much more uplifting turn in the writer's argument here as he talks about Christ's priestly work for us. This is where we're going to start today and go on next week. Is explaining what does that mean and what does it mean for us? The importance of it. So defining it and explaining it as well is what he does and where we're going to be going from here, from, from Hebrews 4 going on into Hebrews 5. And uh, these verses here, um, going from Hebrews 4 into Hebrews 5, he, um, basically what, he, what I want to start with is just this overview, is that Jesus is our sinless high priest. And we can confidently come before God's throne of grace because of who Jesus is for us. So Jesus is our high priest, and because he is who he is, we can confidently approach God's throne of grace. That's kind of the big idea of today's message. And in order to explain that, I want to do uh, two lettuces that we see here. Uh, Tom was telling me this week, he thought of like lettuce. So it's like a lettuce sandwich. It begins and ends with a lettuce. And then in the middle, there's two, two encouragements or motives or groundings for why we should obey those lettuces that, that this verse talks about. And it all starts with the beginning of verse 14. Now it says the word Sense. But if you have a different version of the Bible, maybe the Christian Standard Bible or the NIV or the NASB, it'll say, therefore, sense. And the word therefore, sense, it really, or even just sense, it ties it really closely with verse 13 here. And verse 13, it says that everyone is going to stand naked and exposed before God in order to give an account. And like I said last week, that's kind of like scary language when you think about it. I mean, thinking about you standing naked and exposed before God, you're your immediate reaction is to look for cover, right? That's Adam and Eve. We mentioned in the course seminar, Adam and Eve, they were, realized they were naked and exposed, and they went to hide themselves, even hiding themselves from God. They're looking for some kind of cover. And thankfully, that's what we get in now these, these next three verses. This is the cover that we all need, that we're all looking for, that God provides for us in Jesus Christ. So the therefore sense, it kind of looks at verse 13 where we just left off, but it also looks back to uh, if you have your Bibles open. It looks back to Hebrews chapter two, verses seventeen and eighteen. That it's continuing the same train of thought that he started in verses seventeen and eighteen of, of Hebrews chapter two. It's almost as if like Hebrews three and four were like kind of like an aside, like where the uh, the author write, starts like talking about Psalms ninety five about entering God's rest, and he spends two chapters talking about that, and now. It, he jumps back and says, "Therefore, since we have a great high priest, which he introduced in Hebrews chapter two verses seventeen and eighteen. And so he gets back into the main meat of his message here by picking up on this primary theme about who Jesus is and what he has accomplished for us and he's telling that big idea of the whole book of Hebrews is that Jesus is greater, Jesus is better, right Jesus is supreme, or like in the little um that we have up there, the Jesus, the cross, greater than symbol. Jesus is supreme. He's greater than. He's better. And that's what Hebrews chapter 4, that's what the book of Hebrews is all about. So let's start with that first instruction here, that first duty for us. It says, let us, in verse 14, let us hold fast our confession. Now this is the third time he says something along those lines. In chapter 3, verse 14, he says, um, If indeed we hold our original confidence to the end. And then chapter 3, verse 6, hold fast our confidence. So three times now, he's saying, hold fast, hold on. Hold fast means tightly. Hold tightly to the confession that you made, your profession of faith. These commands all are saying the same thing. Hold tightly to that confession that you made. And this is a present active tense of the verb. In other words, it's a continuing need for us to persevere. We must, you think about your initial decision to, to follow Christ. The initial decision, it's, it's not just you made a decision, decision once in your life, but there's an ongoing discipleship that's necessary and it's important for you. There's an ongoing growth. It's not just like, oh yeah, I raised my hand one time when I heard somebody speak and I prayed along with a prayer of somebody so I know I'm good to go. Uh, it's not just about that, but it's about walking with the Lord all over your life. And our confession that he's talking about, we confess who Jesus Christ is. That's our confession. Our confession is, is who Jesus is. We believe that Jesus is the Christ. We believe that a person named Jesus was, lived in Nazareth 2,000 years ago. Yes, okay, we believe that. You can believe that and not believe that Jesus is the Christ. But we believe that he actually lived as a real person and that he is the Christ. The Christ of scriptures, the Messiah. And the first Christians, it says in Acts chapter 5, verse 42, it says they went from the temple to house to house, teaching and preaching that Jesus was the Christ, that Jesus is the Messiah. And Paul preached the same thing to the Jews in Damascus in Acts chapter 9. This is part of our confession of faith is who we are. Our statement of faith is that Jesus is the Messiah. But more than that, we also believe that Jesus is Lord. He is Lord of all. In other words, he's not just a way to God. He is the way to God. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And if he is not Lord of all, then he's not Lord at all. He can't be Lord only of part of your life. He can't be an add-on to your life. If you believe that Jesus is the Messiah, if you have received Jesus as your Savior, then you have received him as your Lord. He's not one without the other. Because Jesus is the Christ, he is the Lord, and he is the Son of God. It says here, it gives his personal name. That his name is Jesus. That's the name that was given to him. In fact, the angel said you will, to Mary, you will name him Jesus, for he will save the people from this, his sins. And this is the first time that the name Jesus is given here in Hebrews. And then he, he pairs that with Son of God. So you have his humanity there, then his human name, Jesus, and the Son of God is who he is That is that he is truly God and he is truly man, that he is God in the flesh. And this is the Christian's profession of faith in the gospel that saves. In Romans chapter 10, verse 9, Paul says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And this is the message that Christians believe in order to be saved. This is what makes up our Christian faith. And this is the uh, profession of faith that Christians have made all throughout the years. You know, and Paul says, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You know, this is not just some uh, secret words that we believe, but this is the very identity of the Christ we follow. This is the very heart of our confession, that we believe that Jesus is the resurrected Lord. That he didn't just come to this earth as God in the flesh, but he died on the cross for our sins, and that he was buried, and that he rose again from the grave. And Hebrews 4.14, it stresses us to hold on to that confession, especially in the times when we are tempted not to hold on to that confession. You know, Hebrews, uh, some people think that he was writing to these first Jewish Christians who were struggling with their profession of faith because it was easy to let that slide in their society. It was easy to go back to Judaism, go back to works-based salvation. It was easy to live in society if you were to hide that fact that you believe that Jesus is the Messiah. You know, and we saw earlier how Israel had failed, how they didn't hold fast to their confession, and how they didn't enter the rest that God had provided for them. And we are tempted to uh, try to rely on our own strength. We're tempted to go to human teachers, but he's saying, listen, it's not just a human teacher or preacher or priest, but it's by faith in the great high Priest Jesus." that you need to hold your confession hold your confession to him and that takes us to our first encouragement that he gives here our motive the grounding for how we can hold on to our confession of faith is because it is real our confession wasn't invented by man it's grounded in the reality of who Jesus is and it was foreshadowed in the past that anchor of our holding fast is the fact that we have a great high priest you know, high priest and priest in general were common throughout the Old Testament. But there is only one great high priest who ever existed, and that is Jesus, the Son of God. And so to dramatize the, the Jesus and why he is so much greater, the author, he contrasts this with the ministry of the Levitical high priest who entered once a year into the Holy of Holies carrying the blood of the Atonement. And the details... That the high priest was supposed to follow were given to Aaron, the chief priest, and it was outlined in Leviticus chapter 16. It's a long chapter that explains exactly how Aaron was supposed to proceed whenever he was going to go in that once a year, that uh, Yom Kippur, the, high, the day of atonement, when he was going to go in and make atonement for the sins of the people for the previous year. He gave a lot of instructions of how this is how you need to bathe and change your clothes, and this is what you're supposed to carry, and this is what you're supposed to do. And Without going through all of these steps, but he had to go through a lot of steps right here, I want to compare these two things that the author of Hebrews ties to Jesus when it says here that Jesus, in verse 14, he passed through the heavens. And first of all, in Leviticus 16, 17, we see that Aaron, or whoever the chief priest was, he was the only one who was going in to meet with God on this day. Everyone else stood on the outside, and I always wondered, what were they doing on the outside looking in, you know? They couldn't see in. They were standing out there. Um, maybe they were nervous. Maybe they were praying about, oh, I hope everything goes well, <laughs> you know? Because he's the only one in here. Everyone stood on the outside while the high priest did his work there. Well, this phrase in Hebrews 4.14, when it says, he passed through the heavens, it's referring to Jesus' ascension. Not to, his condens- uh, cond- not to when he became human, But it's referring to after 40 days, after he rose from the grave, that he ascended into heaven. And it says that he was with all of his disciples, and they watched him, like, go into heaven and then be hidden by the clouds. And they were all standing there looking into heaven with their mouths open until an angel appeared and said, What are you looking at? (laughs) And they're saying, I'm looking at what just happened. Well, you know, Jesus passed through the heavens. He went to where nobody could see him. And in the same way, the chief priest goes in, uh, they enter through, into the temple area, the outer court, they go through that door, they enter into the holy place, and then they pass through the veil into the most holy place, or the holy of holies. You know, until the high priest couldn't be seen, Jesus is not seen. And it's almost like, uh, you know, if we were to take a rocket into space, if we were to be Elon Musk, you know, or the NASA, and go into space, and my kids have asked me this before, where is heaven at? Well, if you shoot up a rocket, you know that you're not going to find heaven. It's not like Jesus went up into a separate place, you know. It was almost like he was hidden, a different space altogether, not just outer space. You know, think about Stephen in Acts chapter 7. It says that uh, in the process of being stoned, he looked up to heaven and saw heaven open up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. I don't believe anybody else saw that, but I do believe that that invisible curtain, if you will, was pulled back for Stephen and he saw reality. He saw the presence of God. And just like the high priest entered the presence of God year after year on the Day of Atonement to symbolically atone for the people of God, Jesus, our great high priest, he passed through the heavens and then it says that he sat down at the right hand of God because his atoning work for sins was complete. And he entered the actual presence of God. He passed through the heavens. He disappeared from our sight, and he entered into the presence of God. And following it with him, in his righteousness, we can follow him as well. That is the great confession that we hold on to. We believe that Jesus is the Son of God, who is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of God's nature. Before we get into the second encouragement, I want you to notice something here. It says at the end of verse 14, he uses the word our confession. So our is first person plural pronoun. It's collective. And the writer, so he's talking about, he's talking about himself and his listeners. He's talking about you and me, us together, our confession. It's important that we have a public profession of faith. Because the Christian life is not meant to be lived alone. You need to be in community with other believers. And when times get tough, and even when they don't, but especially when times get tough, you need other Christians. And that's why church membership is so important. It's an affirmation of your faith with other believers. And water baptism is the public declaration that you are with Christ, dead in your sins and alive in Christ. And so if you haven't identified with Christ through that public declaration, then I would encourage you to do that because a Facebook status change is not enough. You need to follow the Bible's commands on this. One commentator of the book of Hebrews said this, the writer of Hebrews everywhere insists on the duty of the public profession or the public confession of our faith. The crisis claimed not simply private conviction but a clear declaration of belief openly in the face of men. So we need not just a private conviction, but public proclamation. We live in an individualistic, segmented, privatized world, and there is nothing so countercultural as publicly declaring your allegiance to Christ and your unity with other Christians. So encouragement number two, this builds on how great our high priest is, and I love this, this part of this is that Jesus understands us. Jesus totally gets us. And I love that. Have you ever talked with somebody and you get something in common? You know, maybe it's something that's rare. And you talk, start talking to somebody and you, all of a sudden you just click with somebody. You're like, oh, man, this guy, this, like, I mean, this person like totally gets me. And that's such a great feeling, you know, when you know that, that you can relate to somebody, you know, Well, here's the thing. Jesus totally gets you. He totally gets you. The writer emphasizes this point, not just by stating that Jesus is able to sympathize with us, but he uses this double negative to make this emphasis where he says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness. He's not trying to be confusing there. He's trying to be emphatic by saying, we have a high priest who is able to sympathize with us. It's showing that, um, you know, and that word sympathize. This is another one of those unique words. It's, it's not, it doesn't appear in any other parts of scripture. One other time, it's in Hebrews. But that's it. And it's not even used in any other ancient writings. And it means to have compassion with or to suffer with or to feel in one's heart just like somebody else feels. How wonderful it is to know that we have a high priest who has done those things for us but yet, it can relate with us. And not even a little bit, but on our deepest level of who we are. He can relate to our, our illness, our sickness, our, all of our incapacities, all of our frailties of our mind and our body, and all kinds of weaknesses, whether it's um, physically or morally or mentally or emotionally. Jesus is God in the flesh, and God is not far away. He isn't distant. He came near. God came near to us. Isn't that amazing to consider, to think about? He doesn't just feel sorry for us when we are in pain. He has felt our pain. He gets us. He was just like us in every way. But it says he did not sin. Jesus was tempted, but he did not sin, which is great because he needed to be perfect in order to be the perfect sacrifice for our sins. In Romans chapter 3, Paul explains how it wasn't that God just ignored sin, but it says that Paul explains how um, God overlooked the sins of the past in his forbearance in order that full atonement would be made in the cross of Jesus Christ. So in other words, Israel lived under the threat of God's wrath day after day. Day after day. And the Old Testament priests could only offer, offer sacrifices that would delay God's judgment against sin. And the writer of Hebrews expands on this in the future, how they had to go year after year and keep doing these things. So in other words, their sacrifices could only buy time, even if you went every day. Jesus' sacrifice, however, accomplished once and for all the full atonement for sin. And this was only possible because Jesus had never sinned, totally unlike any other high priest who had ever lived. And that's one of the reasons why he is the great high priest as well. And Jesus faced temptation just like us. We face temptation every day. And this says that Jesus was tempted in every respect. Now, we naturally need to ask the question well, is that really true? Was he tempted just like we are? I mean, in a way, no. He, not every, exactly, because Jesus, you know, he, you have temptation if you're older, because Jesus never lived an older life. He was never. A married woman. So it's like, well, how can he relate exactly to each one of us, right? He never had technology or smartphones. But you know what? Jesus did experience the essential temptations that cover every experience that, that we face. In fact, Jesus' experience of temptation was greater because the stakes were so high, but he never gave in. I think of Jesus in the wilderness with the devil. Remember, he was he was challenged to turn the stones into bread because he was hungry. Well, we're all hungry, right? But, but really the temptation was, was doubting the word of God, doubting that God would care for him, doubting that we could trust and, and, care, and that, trust him because he, the Father cares for us. And so, yeah, it might have been bread, but it was essentially the same. In fact, it was greater because he never gave in to that temptation. I like the way C.S. Lewis explains it in the book Mere Christianity, which is excellent, but he says it this way. No man knows how bad he is till he has tried very hard to be good. Did you know that? That's not scripture, but the way Lewis explains this is great. No man knows how bad he is till he has very tried to be good. A silly idea is current that good people do not know what temptation means. And that is an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. After all, you find out the strength of the German army by fighting against it, not by giving in. You find out the strength of a wind by trying to walk against it, not by lying down. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. That is why bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. They have ne- they have lived a sheltered life by always giving in. We never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside us until we try to fight it. And Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation is also the only man who knows to the full what temptation means. He is the only complete realist. What a great explanation, isn't it? Bad people don't know what badness is. <laughs> you don't know how strong the wind is unless you're fighting against it. You don't know how strong temptation is because you give in. You don't know how, how bad it could have been. Now consider Jesus, right? He is the only one who really knows what it's like because he is the only one who never gave in to temptation to sin. And so he was the one who faced all of that, which I think is extremely helpful because we know that we can go to Christ when we are tempted. We know that he can relate to us. He feels us. He gets us. He is the only one who was tempted in every way common to humanity and yet did not sin. And that is why he is able to sympathize with us. And not just sympathize with us, but to empathize with us. He knows us. Whenever temptation or difficulty is facing you, then stop running to other solutions and trying to look for sympathy in other places, but look to Jesus Christ. He is right there, and he's been through it. And that's why the last let us, it says here, let us now, let us then, let us go to Jesus for help. Let us draw near the throne of grace. What an amazing picture to think about. When you think of a throne, you think of power, don't you? You think of strength. You think of a place of fear. That's what a throne should envision in your mind, a place of strength. And that is partially true for us. If you're not in Christ, then God's throne will be a place of terrible judgment. At his throne, those who reject Christ will bear the full penalty for their sins. But for those who uh, do not reject Christ, they'll have a throne of grace. For those who are in Christ... It's, a, it's immeasurably grace. Romans 8.1 says, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So God's dwelling place is a place of grace. And it's a place from which God's grace flows to us. So therefore we can confidently draw near to him. It says in Ephesians 3.12, in Christ we have boldness and access through our faith in him. So we can approach without fear. And find acceptance as we approach the throne of grace. You know, interestingly, that um, the ESV translates this word in verse 16 as confidence, and that word confidence does have a long history in classical Greek literature because it meant free and open speech with citizen uh, of citizens one with another. So it was the freedom to speak in front of somebody, regardless of their social standing, or their class, or their rank in society. And I always like to think of When I hear the explanation for that word, I think of the military, right? Um, I've never been in the military, but I've seen movies. And um, they (laughs) always say, permission to speak freely, sir, you know, to someone above their rank. Permission to speak freely, right? Because if you're under a rank of somebody, you can't just go and start talking to them like they're your equal. You have to recognize the rank of the person you're speaking to, right? And you can't just speak unless you are granted permission, well, what he's saying here is that we have the confidence to go and speak to God. We have that kind of freedom to speak to him. And, you know, And when you look at the, the use of this word here, it was never used in prayer in classical Greek literature. It was the Jews who first began to use this word in the Greek Old Testament to describe prayer because it meant bold frankness. We can come before God now. We can come without hesitation. We can come without being tentatively. We can come boldly before his throne. As Tim Keller said, who would dare wake up the king in the middle of the night to ask for a drink of water? But only a little child. And only a child of the king would do that. But that's us. That's the kind of access that we have. He won't scold you, He won't turn you away. If you come to Him, you will find mercy and grace. He said, You will receive mercy and find grace mercy is not getting what you deserve mercy is a pardon for past failures that's why if you commit a crime and you go before the court you throw yourself on the mercy of the court right mercy means that you don't get something that you do deserve you deserve punishment you don't get it and find grace grace is when you get something you don't deserve so you didn't earn it but you get it nonetheless that's the difference between mercy and grace and we see those used in scripture together all the time we use them all the time in our language too which is good but it's helpful to understand like you receive mercy you don't get the punishment but you and you also get the grace you also get something you didn't earn That is God showing us his love and his kindness and his help in the time of need and that's what he says in the end of verse 16 in your time of need listen to me are you in need do you ever have needs The only condition to receiving the help that you need is your willingness to approach the throne of grace That's all it takes is for you to boldly come before him, even in your weakness. Actually, especially in your weakness. We can approach the throne of grace with confidence because we know that God has finally and fully and completely put away all of our sins in Christ Jesus, and he has promised to help us in our time of need. You know, I wanted to end with this uh, song from Annie Johnson Flint. We were talking about this person the other day and if you think you have a difficult life, you should read this person's biography. It's crazy. Um, if you've ever felt abandoned, if you ever, I mean, this person who went through all of this, and, but she also met Jesus Christ and knew that Jesus experienced everything that she would experienced and even more. And whenever we're going through things in life, I want you to remember that we can come to his throne of grace and receive his mercy and receive his kindness. He giveth more grace when the burdens grow greater. He sendeth more strength when our labors increase. To added affliction, he added his mercy. To multiplied trials, he multiplied peace. When we have exhausted our store of endurance, when our strength has failed, ere the day has half done, when we reach the end of our hoarded resources, our Father's forgiving is only begun. His love has no limit, His grace has no measure. His power has no boundary known unto man. For out of his infinite riches in Jesus, he giveth and giveth and giveth again. Let's pray together. God, we thank you that you give your strength to us when we need it the most. We have so many needs in our own life, God, whether it's our our emotional needs and mental needs and physical needs. There are those here who are suffering in so many ways. And God, we want to approach the throne of grace with confidence, knowing that you give us your grace. Lord, we pray that you would strengthen us this day and this week. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.